Welcome back to Minds Matter, a podcast sponsored by the Monash Center for Consciousness and Contemplative Studies. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And on Minds Matter, we explore research from neuroscience to psychology while talking about our own personal experiences. And this week on the podcast, I spoke to Dr. Rachel Better, who's a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton in the Neuroscience Institute and Department of Psychology. And she is interested in rumination and uses reinforcement learning models to study rumination and how we can maybe measure that in the clinic. So we spoke about those ideas. We spoke about how we can apply these models. And then outside of her own research, Rachel has a lot of interests in teaching. So we spoke about her experience with teaching without grades and as well as teaching in prisons. And as well, how we can engage the community more broadly in scientific research. So I hope you guys enjoy. My name is Rachel Bedder. I'm a cognitive and computational psychologist at Princeton University. So my research focuses on using tools from computational modeling to better understand cognition and cognitive behaviors. So to understand thinking in particular. So I'm very interested in repetitive negative thinking and within that rumination. So the modeling frameworks I use for these things like reinforcement learning that your listeners might have heard a bit about before. And I'm very interested in how people represent the statistics of the world and do they think the environment is full of good and happy things or is the world full of bad things and perils and how that affects how they might think about things. So this work sits within the field of computational psychiatry. So very briefly, and this is a field that uses computational methods to ask questions relevant to psychiatry. So understanding what certain symptoms are, why they occur, why they co-occur with other symptoms, and hopefully how we can use that information to improve treatment and even develop interventions down the line. So you mentioned that your work focuses on rumination. This is something that think we've all heard about, but can you explain what exactly rumination is? Sure. So that's funny you say we've all heard about it because I did not hear about this word rumination until the first year of my PhD when I was sitting in a mental health conference and someone was like, oh, you know, people think these bad things about themselves and this is called rumination and lots of people do it. And I was like, what? Other people do this? (laughs) It's not just me. It's not just me. That was mind-blowing for me. The kind of rumination I really focus on in my research is this preoccupation with thinking about some negative event we've experienced or the negative feelings we might have. So thinking about our own feelings and thinking, you know, why does this happen? What does it mean that this happened? So it has lots of sampling from our past, thinking about things, other negative things often that have happened. And this kind of layer of abstract thinking. I, I am a bad person. I think of that as an abstraction over things that happened to me. So let me give you an example. Let's say you went to a party last weekend and you saw someone you haven't seen in a while and they were kind of cold with you, a little bit off with you. The next day you wake up and you're lying in your bed and you're thinking, why did they act that way? And you're thinking about other times you might have seen that person or other awkward interactions you might have had with other people at parties or in other social circumstances. And you think about these and you churn these over, because that's where the word rumination comes from, the churning over of things. And that can lead you to things like, no one likes me, or I'm socially awkward. And then we can sit and think about how socially awkward we are for a while. So most people ruminate to some degree, but we definitely see much higher instances of this in people with mood disorders. For example, if you think of rumination as a trait, some people do a lot of ruminating. This predicts things like the onset of initial depressive episode and the likelihood of repeating an episode, having another episode of depression. So it's a really rich predictive symptom, but we don't have a good handle on it, I would say, in the field. And is it different to worry? Great. So everyone always asks me, that's the first question people (laughs) ask me a lot, like, are you just talking about worry? So worry is another kind of repetitive negative thinking. People tend to consider worry as thinking more about the future. For example, people might think, oh, I'm really worried I'm going to miss this flight tomorrow, or I'm worried this is going to happen, and engage in a lot of thinking about what might happen after that, so the steps after that negative event, or how to avoid that negative event happening completely. So 
we all know warriors in our life who might, you know, have planned like, well, I'll get up really early. And so if my alarm clock doesn't work, it won't matter. And then I'll use this public transport because there might be a problem with this one. So it's kind of simulating all these future scenarios to work out how to avoid a negative event. People in the computational world think of worry as a system of planning, whereas I think of rumination as a system of inference. But it is important to say that, you know, we can't, we can't observe worry or rumination. We can't look at them and see them and say, these two things are different. We're relying on self-report for people in the clinic and our own experiences, of course. Some researchers think it's better to think about this as one category called repetitive negative thinking, which is transdiagnostic in some ways. People often associate rumination with depression and worry with anxiety. People suggest it's the same patterns of negative thinking, but they're applied to different content. So one of them is this abstract stuff about the past. One of them is this things about uncertainty in the future. I focus on rumination in particular. So I try and think of it as a separable construct because it contains all this, all this abstract thinking that we don't tend to see as much in worry. Not, not completely, but you know, these, I'm a terrible person. The world is bad. These like literal verbal thoughts that people have. And they're kind of inherently sticky in some way. You know, once we start thinking about them, we can't stop. My research kind of focuses on narrowing in on that particular kind of yeah, thinking. That's really interesting. I guess thinking about those differences. So with worry, we could say that there are positive reasons why we do this. Like there can be cues of, oh, I need to be aware of something. Does rumination have any positive sides? Are there reasons why we've learned to do that? Because it, it sounds, it's, yeah, as you said, it's it's different to worrying. Should we do any rumination really, or is it all negative? So no behaviors come out of nowhere, right? Like negative behaviors and things. We tend to think that they're based on some useful system, something that might provide value that might have gone wrong in some way, or that system is just being used in the wrong environment. If you think of rumination as a process of inference, so thinking about these things that have happened to me, what do they mean? We need to do that about everything in our life. We need to know what things mean so we can plan how to act in the future. It's just when it goes on for too long and it's too negative and it's, it can be very painful to you know think these things about yourself. But we definitely all know the warrior in our friend group who is the person who who turns up for the hike and they have the headlamp and the and the nature bars. So you're like, oh great, that person worrying was useful to us. Now we have all these snacks and things. But maybe they also have, you know, the bear spray and, and three different kinds of raincoats. And you can see that that person might have been engaged in this possibly negative thinking for a really, really long time. So a little bit can be good in both cases. It's when people, you know, this is taking over my life in some way and I can't stop doing it. That's when we think of it as not adaptive or not useful. And why are computational modeling methods, how can they help us understand rumination? What do they offer? One of the really exciting things about using computational modeling is there's really nowhere to hide when you use a model, right? When you want to translate a symptom or a behavior into a computational model, you have to write down all your assumptions that you think are relevant, how a mechanism works, how these parts of the mechanism might interact into an equation in a mathematical formulation. You have to say, what are the inputs to this model? And what are the outputs? So for example, if you want to talk about how mood might cause people to perceive rewards differently, if you want to use a computational method, you have to say how. Like, does it change how they learn about rewards? Does it change how long that reward might influence their behavior? In some ways, this sounds incredibly reductionist, right? So I'm going to take all this rich content about life and feelings and my innermost thoughts and beliefs about myself, and I'm going to put it in an equation. Like that, That's a nonsense, right? But the the power of using modeling in these spaces is exactly that. So you try and find the minimal number of elements that will explain something. So in this case, what are the minimal elements we need to describe repetitive thinking? Why might someone repeatedly think about the same thing over and over again? And you have to think, what assumptions do I have when I have this kind of mental model of rumination as a scientist that I'm trying to translate? What assumptions do I have and how do I write them down? And it really forces us to be really honest with ourselves as scientists about when I say this affects this, what do I mean exactly? Or how do I think that might affect this other thing? And it reveals where we don't know things as well, which is really important in science, right? We need to know where our blind spots are. Models, even though they're a very reductionist approach, they can really help us reveal things 
and help us move forward in our understanding of things. Have you heard the phrase, all models are wrong, but some models are useful? That's yeah, a, so that's I a, love that's one of my it's, favorites. <laughs> it's great, right? And it makes me think whenever I'm wrong, I'm like, that must mean I'm useful. Of course, it does not mean <laughs> So what that means in some way is that a model has to be a simplification. You have to throw away loads of stuff in order to see and understand what you think are the most important moving parts. So you're sacrificing being able to make perfect predictions, which makes you wrong in many circumstances, in order to have a model that's understandable, therefore useful. So when we try to apply these things to repetitive negative thinking and rumination, because we can't see anything there, we don't even have behavior to like leverage on there. We just have people's reports about the experience. It can be very challenging to try and translate that to a model, but also very valuable because as I said, you can start writing down those assumptions and thinking about how all these things connect together. Can you explain how you use these computational methods for your modeling rumination as state inference process paper? That paper is a conference paper from a conference in cognitive science, which was held in Sydney this year. So it's an early paper on this framework of trying to establish whether a state inference process is a useful model for understanding rumination. So this paper uses a model called a partially observable Markov decision process or a POMDP. And it's part of the um, reinforcement learning universe of models, basically. Reinforcement learning at its most simplest is some kind of framework where there is an agent and an environment. So an agent can perform actions, in this case, thinking. I'm thinking of thinking as an action. I decide to think about something. And it can use these actions to learn more about the state of the environment and maximize them having more rewards and less punishments. So that's the reinforcement aspect, being rewarded or avoiding punishment. So your listeners might have heard of a Markov decision process or an MDP rather than a POMDP. So briefly, that's a model where all the states of the environment are represented as fully known. So we can imagine a scenario, you walk into a building, it's either a fancy bar or a local pub. In a local pub, we know we can just go and sit down at any table, totally fine. In a fancy bar, we know we should wait at the front, let a hostess seat us. Depending on the state of the environment, that tells us what actions we should do. In the fancy bar, you can go and sit down and then the hostess might come up to you and say, oh, you know, absolutely not. You can't do that. And that could be very embarrassing, right? So we need to know what state we're in in order to perform actions that can be rewarding or avoid punishing ones. And in a POMDP, we represent those states as a probability distribution. So you can say, you go inside and you're like, I'm 70% sure this is a pub, right? I can leverage that uncertainty to decide on my actions, or I can wait and take more observations, look at the environment more, and that will increase my uncertainty, whether I'm in a, the fancy bar or the local pub. And given what I just said about how embarrassing it would be, or at least I would find it embarrassing to sit down and then have someone get me up again, maybe that's my Britishness. It's the worst say, possible... I scenario in the world. Know if Australians would mind. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a great example. So if I perceive that outcome as being really negative, I might want to be more certain before I choose that action that I'm in the correct state for that action. Whereas you, as someone who might not find that embarrassing, wouldn't have to wait as long, look at the environment as much. You could just go ahead and do that action. And if you're wrong, you're like, oh, okay, never mind. Not the end of the world. Would be the end of the world for me. I would have to, I would have to leave. <laughs> that would be the outcome. So the modeling framework looks at this to say it's leveraging your certainty about the environment on how likely is an action going to lead to reward or punishment. And in this model, you can take more observations to increase your certainty. So that's the foundation of a POMDP. And what got us really excited about using this POMDP, this state inference model to explore rumination, is it can tell you precisely how certain you need to be. So how many observations, how long you need to observe the environment before you make a decision based on the rewards and punishments you perceive in that environment, how noisy the observations are, and how costly taking observations are. So if you're standing at the front and you're getting in everyone's way, you might not want to wait as long before you sit down because every time step you take, people are bumping into you. But when you think about thinking and every time step we can sample from memory a thought, then that's pretty cost-free, right? I'm just sitting down and thinking so I can think for a long time in that respect. 
So going into a bit more about how we apply this model to rumination is we think about rumination as a process of trying to infer one of two states. Of course, there could be more. We're using a simplified version. But these states could be more abstract things. Let's use the example again of having this uncomfortable interaction with someone at a party. There's two possible states. There's one is, oh, that person was having a bad day. The other one is that person thinks I'm awful, right? We can think there's these two possible states. We can sample from memory. So the POMDP tells us how many samples someone might want to make. Given how rewarding or punishing these actions we could take in future are when we see this person, we need to know if that person's having a bad day or they hate us because when we next see them, that might affect how we act towards them. So with this model, would it be someone who doesn't engage in rumination? It would sample not as much and then lead to the belief, oh, they just had a bad day? So it wouldn't necessarily lead them to that belief. They might take less samples and they might perceive all the possible rewards and punishments from all the states to be relatively low stakes, basically. And if every time we take a sample, it's a little costly, we don't want to sample unnecessarily. If you think, oh, it's low stakes, it doesn't matter that much, you know, I'll figure it out the next time I see the person, or it doesn't really matter if they don't like me or they're having a bad day, because that's not important to my self-concept or something. Yep, that makes sense. So what were the three beliefs you simulated that could lead to rumination? And then what did you find? In this paper, we looked at some clinical literature, which this model is largely built on, and thought, what things do people with mood disorders or people who engage in a lot of rumination, what do they believe about the world? And can we embed that in the model to see if we can get the model to ruminate? And by ruminate, I mean take lots and lots of samples. So the first thing we simulated was the belief that in one of the states, something really, really bad could happen, as I alluded to before. And what we saw there is that if you believe there's some possible negative outcome, even if you're getting evidence you're not in the state where the bad thing happens, you still want to be really, really sure before you finish thinking about it because you want to make sure you're not in that other state where the bad thing could happen. We also simulated if you initially start from the perception that you might be in the bad state, when you get evidence you're in the good state, it takes you longer to move yourself to convince yourself. So that also increases sampling. And finally, we affected whether the observations are noisier than you expect. So in this model, if you get samples from memory that are very clear, it's clear if they belong to state one or state two, you just need to take a couple and then you can finish. But if you believe they're going to be very clear and then you get these kind of noisy evidence like, oh, that, that memory is kind of ambiguous, oh, this one's kind of ambiguous too, it will also cause you to sample for longer. I just want to frame the work a bit in, so you asked what we found with them, right? The aim of this project really was to see if this model can be internally consistent. So can we add things to the model that behave in the way we expect them to, right? It wasn't like we were testing hypotheses and then we're like, oh, this, this does this, what a surprise. We were thinking, is this framework going to be useful to expand on in future? If so, these kinds of things should cause it to sample more. And we confirmed that that was the case based on our intuitions. And like I said before, that's one of the really great things about modeling is you can be like, I think this is going to work, but we can test it. We can write it down explicitly and be like, yes, the way I thought about it in my head was consistent with all the different assumptions I've had to make. So we actually got questions from one of our listeners. So shout out to Adam when he found out you were going to be on the podcast. So I'll ask these questions. What do you think the results of your rumination model would be in a volatile environment? So for the listeners, a volatile environment is when the rewards are shifting and changing. So the environment you're in isn't the same. That's a great question. And of course, I could, I could test it in the model, but right now I'm going to think, what would my model do? One thing that's quite important about the way I'm thinking about this framework is the rewards and or punishments, negative outcomes you could get at the end, they're all imagined by the agent. They're all things you've come up with, beliefs you have about the world. So in some ways, this model is kind of reliant on you thinking the world is relatively deterministic because you need to be able to trust what you think about the world is going to be an accurate reflection. So if I think I figured out what state of the world it is by sampling from my memory, and then I know, okay, given that state, what action I should perform, I can kind of satisfactorily end the ruminative episode. If I don't know if that action will lead to rewards and punishments, I might not be able to 
stop ruminating. Now that might sound like the rumination episode should go on for longer, but I think what the model would actually suggest is there would be no point in ruminating because the model really is predicated on this fact that it can resolve itself. It can find out the answer. If you cannot find out the answer because you believe the environment is too volatile, then I think the model would say don't ruminate in this respect. But of course I can try and simulate it. It's a great question. I think a lot of ruminators engage in somewhat black and white thinking. The world is like this or the world's like this. I need to figure it out. So it might not work as well for people who have more realistic views about the world being slightly less black and white. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask about people who ruminate in the world. If you're in a volatile environment, do you ruminate less? But I suppose it's your belief about how volatile the environment is. That's the that's the difference. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I did a lot of rumination during COVID and that was also pretty volatile, it seemed. Yeah. <laughs> but also that's what lots of us did, right? Because there was nothing else we could do, right? So the mm. cost of thinking was so low because it's like, what else am I going to do? I might as well think for longer about the world and what it means <laughs> and things. And then another question from Adam, he asks, what are the implications for understanding pathology? Does problematic state inference translate into rumination or other symptoms in things such as depression or schizophrenia? So I love this question. Adam, this is a great question. (laughs) I think one reason why state inference is a really rich framework for thinking about different symptomologies is because it asks, how do people believe the world is organized? What events do they think are meaningful? What events do they think predict each other? So it takes it takes a step back from behavior and pathologizing the things people might do or the way they might interact with others, but asks instead, okay, what might that person believe about the world is true in order to make their actions adaptive in some way or make them the best course of action? So it means it has to take into account the environment someone has been experienced to or might have been brought up with. The statistics of when we're younger and the environment we develop in, they will create some of our beliefs about the world, how good the world is, whether people are trustworthy, all these things. And these can really lead to how you perceive the world later in life as an adult walking around and interacting with new things. And I also think beliefs or positive beliefs about the world can be such a protective factor in mental health. If I'm someone who has had a set of experiences in life where where I believe things are always going to be okay, like things will always work out. You've heard people say that, right? These are always people that things have worked out for. So that's what they believe, right? Then why wouldn't they? And then maybe there's something happens to me today, which is incredibly inconvenient. I miss the train and then I miss an important meeting at work and it's awful. If I have this kind of belief that everything will work out to be okay, I'm going to be a bit more robust to that, that one event. Whereas someone who doesn't, they might infer from this like, oh, now everything's really bad or now everything's going to go wrong from this. So the inference they've made about the state of the world is like everything is bad now. So it can give us a lot of hopefully insight into different symptoms, different behaviors we might see in different conditions and allows us to ask, okay, what states does that person think exist in the world or what state they might be in to understand a bit more. Another question from Adam. This is his last question. He says, are there any scenarios where excessive sampling is a good thing? So I guess that's kind of similar to, well, maybe maybe you can have excessive sampling that's not just rumination. So maybe there is situations where it's good. One of the things I think is great about using these reinforcement learning style models is we can actually flip that question and flip Adam's question on its head, if you don't mind, Adam, and ask, rather than saying like, is lots of sampling good or is lots of sampling bad? We can say, well, let's assume the amount of sampling someone did is the right amount. What would that mean they believe about the world for that to be the right amount, basically? Rather than pathologizing the amount of sampling, it says, okay, what are the beliefs that person has to cause that behavior? But generally, you can say, you know, any amount of information gathering is useful if the environment is not completely volatile. So observations we take in provide us with more information, allow us to increase our precision. But when it's bad is when it starts to trade off against other things, if it's stopping you from doing other things. So for example, during COVID, excessive sampling in any way, like reading the news over and over again, reading more articles about what do these symptoms mean or how many days do I have to isolate and how many, has it been 11 days or 12 days based on the government's things? 
there's nothing else you should be doing, then it's kind of fine to do that kind of sampling, ignoring the kind of negative impacts of it. But often it's, you know, it's offsetting against what could I be doing instead? That was really helpful. And I feel like I've said this so many times, but you also have just summed up why I love computational psychiatry, because it's not that any beliefs are wrong. It's like the beliefs that you've had because of your environment. And it's not like, oh, this is wrong or you have this wrong. And I I always love that, that I just think that that's going to help a lot of people if we can change the way that we consider mental health and why people have formed these beliefs. So it's something I've thought about a lot because a few years ago when I started sort of thinking about this reinforcement learning framework, I thought, how can this not be pathologizing? Because the reinforcement learning can define what behavior is optimal and what is not optimal. And when you hear that language, you think, well, you're saying this behavior is good or this behavior is bad. So for a while I struggled with like, how can I, how can I bring that framework together with a belief that, as I said, these behaviors aren't inherently bad in some way. And it's when I realized you can flip the question on its head and say, no, assume the behavior is optimal and then think, what is it optimizing for? That was a really exciting sort of moment and realization for me. And that is not to say it's the only way to think about these things, but I think it is a very valuable perspective to at least consider the question both ways around. Yeah, I agree. And as I've started learning about this research, I've spoken to friends who have suffered through certain challenges in their lives and they feel quite empowered by that framing of it. And I think that that's awesome. So in Rachel's description of the computational model as someone who doesn't do as much modeling. I was hoping that we could kind of go over it together and you could teach me a little bit more, Beth, since you are in this modeling space. I had a few different questions about what the model kind of means, but first I was wondering when Rachel described the different types of simulations that she ran and the different types of parameters that were put into the model, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what those different parameters were and like how those simulations work and maybe how they're kind of applied to a situation in which maybe we can take the example of like me ruminating on whether the person at the grocery store was mean to me because they hate me and they find me super annoying or if they were just having a bad day. Is that something that you've ruminated on, Ava? (laughs) I feel like not necessarily at the grocery store, but sometimes if I go to like a fancy shop, like when we went yeah, when yeah. we were in LA together and we went to that fancy store, I feel like the store attendant was unimpressed with me. That's so funny because I remember <laughs> at the shop I was like, la 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 la, this is great. <laughs> I and I thought they loved us anyway. <laughs> I asked a girl to get a size and she didn't love that. <laughs> and you had the perfect size already, so I feel like everything was fine. So when you create a model and you want to simulate some sort of behavioral process, you can think about, well, what are different things that might make that process arise? So why would some people ruminate? And one of the simulations she ran was she looked at, would the model be more likely to ruminate if it thinks losses are really, really bad? So if you're about to do a task and you think a loss is really detrimental to you, you're probably going to be more likely to want to sample and get more knowledge and information before doing something to avoid receiving a loss. Does that make sense? So that was kind of the second question that I had, because as you talked about, and as I know in my small background on this, reinforcement learning is really about reward and punishment and optimizing Mm -hmm. for reward and reducing punishment. And so I guess when you say the word loss in that context, Does it mean the realization that that person actually hates you? Or it seemed like also in some of what you were discussing, it was like other types of cost. And I don't know if that was different, like in the sense of just sampling itself is costly because it takes effort. And then you also talked about how like in COVID there was nothing else to do. So you might as well engage in that. Or is the loss the outcome? Like it's a bad state if that person hates you and it's a good state if it's just like, oh, they were just having a bad day and had nothing to do with you. Yeah. So that's a really good question. And so in terms of the task that she modeled, making a decision 
led to an actual, you can imagine that as an amount of money. So you could get a win. So just say you got $100 or a loss minus $100. So in the task, and when we're speaking about the task, that's what that loss refers to. And that's, again, the model is we're abstracting things and we're making things simpler. So the, the loss in the model is like, okay, we're saying that's losing $100. But you have a really good point. Okay, well, how does that loss apply to real life situations? What, you know, it's not like everything we do is this very clear decision about, oh, am I going to win or lose $100? So when we want to think about how these processes might apply to our real world environments, you can be flexible on on what that loss is and what the value of that loss is. Like one of the things that people who are depressed have this higher kind of loss aversion, so they really don't like to experience losses. So that's maybe sometimes where they don't engage in their environments as much. So you could use the example of maybe the loss aversion is a loss would be going to the shop and having someone be rude to you. Like that isn't a good outcome for anyone. No one anymore. <laughs> Maybe some people might enjoy that, but overall people don't enjoy that. That is a negative or a loss outcome. But how impactful was that on you? But then you made the example of us going to the shop. We were doing the same quote unquote task or in the same environment. And I didn't experience that of all because of my actions. So when we get to the real world, it's really, really complicated. But we try and simplify those things into these tasks. And then we can use those as kind of examples of what goes on in the real world. But yeah, our environments, as we know, are very complicated. So we try and do this kind of abstraction. Does that make sense? So the idea in terms of the application to ruminating about whether someone hates you as a person or was having a bad day and that's why they behaved in a certain way towards you. In this specific model, that's modeled as loss or reward reward is that right okay that so the idea is is that you run these simulations and then you can fit behavioral data and we can get some understanding of the kind of parameters that individual people have and then from that so we can say okay this person has really high loss aversion how does that affect their behavior and oversampling in other contexts and situations but it just because if they oversample because they have a higher worry about loss doesn't mean that all of the things that are implicated are directly a decision about receiving a reward or a loss. Yeah, so I guess maybe this example also is difficult because of the way we think about rumination. But I guess another way of thinking about it is you guys may have heard about people doing like reaction time tasks and things like that. And people who maybe have addictions, for example, have higher reaction times to a certain stimulus and they do this behavioral task and we show that they have that higher, higher reaction time. That doesn't mean that that higher reaction time is what leads them to directly being an addict or using substances. But what that reaction time can do is give us some information about how their brain processes any sort of information. And when the more we understand how an individual's brain processes information, we can apply that to other situations in their life. And it doesn't directly have to be, okay, so someone has a faster reaction time when they see a certain stimulus in a task. That means that when they see a, a drink, they drink it faster. That that's not the connection that we make. They make some sort of decision process that leads them to maybe like hasty decisions or something. And again, I'm going to use the word abstraction that can be then applied to other complicated decisions that they make in more complex environments. But what these tasks do, they're not a one-to-one -one mapping of how we make decisions in our environment, but they give us, hopefully, the idea is some sort of understanding about the differences they may do when they're processing any kind of information. So with this task about this simulation with rewards and losses and the agent has to decide to pick left or right just say and they can decide to think about it longer to get more information to avoid a loss then they lose money over time we can then work out how much they want to sample how much they don't like losses these kind of things and then we can apply that to other situations and think about how they process information in that case even though it's not the direct same task structure so are you saying in a sense that it's more of a agent or like person-centered approach where you can say, okay, based on how you're doing this task, I can try to apply that later on to maybe that will predict how you might engage in another task, which might be 
not like a one-to-one, -one. like just because you're processing this faster doesn't mean you're going to be faster in a different type of task. And it's not really then about, and I know maybe this is hard because it's bringing it back into a more concrete realm, but where if I was in a situation with the shopkeeper, right? Where what's the shopkeeper's name? Stacy. Okay. Where basically it's very clear to me and in my memory that Stacy fully was like, you specifically, Ava, are super annoying. Then in that case, I would be put in a situation where like my memory is not ambiguous. So it's not about like the features of how I process. It's just like in that moment, I'm sure that that situation was not ambiguous versus if she just kind of like scowled at me, but was also looking at her phone and maybe her boyfriend was mad at her or something. So I have more to sample in the sense that I can go over those memories that are more ambiguous, but it's more about thinking about how I as an individual respond to an ambiguous versus non-ambiguous situation rather than saying when someone is put into an environment that has these specific features, they're more likely to ruminate versus not. So it's more about my response to diverse situations rather than diverse situations influence on anyone. Yeah, I think that that's a really good way of understanding it. And then what's cool about this is, it's for, yeah, it's very much about the individual. Because just say you were in that situation and the shopkeeper was extremely rude to you, but you never think about it again. You could not care less. So it's like, okay, that's interesting. How do you process information that that is the case that you never think about again? Is that because your learning rate for bad things is negative and you just don't retain any of them? It's like, what was the process that led you to never think of that event again? And can we capture that kind of process in a simple task so we can get you to do the task and then understand why you behave that way or remember that in that situation? Or it could be, yeah, again, the shopkeeper just looked at her phone or scowled at you or some, something like that, Stacy, and it, it wasn't actually that bad, but you remembered it as terrible. It might not be because you oversampled. It might be because you have a really high learning rate for negative things. And even that tiny little bit of information, you increase the precision on that so much. And your brain was like, I need to learn so much from this because this was a really awful experience. Again, we could get you to do a task and we could get maybe a parameter out for that task and understand why you process that information in that way. That makes sense. So okay. it's really about figuring out what are the features of my response to a certain situation that lead me to a certain end state of thinking she hates me versus she doesn't. So then in Rachel's model, what are the key features of a given agent that make them more susceptible to ruminating versus not? Yeah. So she looked at three different parameters or things that, that might change that. And one of those, as I just mentioned before, how much the agent didn't like the loss. And, and that makes sense. If we think about someone who doesn't really want a loss, they will avoid that. So they would want to get more information before deciding which one to do. So think about it. If you're doing a task and the loss is just a tap on the back, you might be like, I don't really care how much I sample. I'll just get it. If the loss is an electric shock, you're going to sample longer to really make sure that you don't select an option that would result in a loss. She also looked to see if maybe rumination was because you already have a prior belief about being pessimistic. So this is an agent who, before even starting the tasks, they believe that they are closer to getting a loss. So when in the shop example, if we go back to that, a pessimistic agent would be someone before even engaging with Stacy thinks, you know what, Stacy hates me without even interacting with her. So that would be a concrete example of that. Then she also modeled an agent that, this is kind of interesting, had an overly deterministic model of the world. So that's an agent that really believes that the model will be completely consistent with the quote-unquote ground truth of the world. People who ruminate, they think that that rumination will lead them to the true state of the world. If you think that you can get to that state of the world, you would sample more. So if you have this belief, okay, I definitely will 100% at one stage know which one is a loss and which one is a win, because you think the world's deterministic like that, you would sample long enough to get that information. Whereas if you know that, oh, you know, the world's dynamic, things are complicated, who really knows? You're going to ruminate less because you know maybe you'll never get to that quote-unquote ground truth. 
So taking it back to the Stacy example, if you go to the shops and Stacy engages in you in whatever way, if you think the world is really deterministic and you want to understand why Stacy did what she did, you would think about that for a while because you think you would be able to understand why she did what she did. Whereas if you're someone who doesn't think like that, you'll be like, Stacy could have done what she did for so many reasons and what, what of it. So I'm not going to wait on it. And you hit on a really good point here as well in saying before if rumination's good or bad or what people don't do things because they're bad or good they're doing them because their model is telling them to so if you have a deterministic model of the world it makes sense to sample as much as you should because you can get to that outcome if you do think a loss is really really bad and it's the same as an electric shock it makes sense to oversample so you can make sure you don't get that so none of these things are because you're doing the wrong thing ever. They're because you're doing what your model is telling you to do. And if what your model is telling you to do is leading you not to thriving in your environment, that's when it's like, okay, how can we maybe help you by helping you maybe relearn that the, the loss is just a tap on the back. It's not an electric shock. How can we help you do that so you can thrive in your environment because you're not doing anything wrong? That makes sense. And that definitely is where I see like from the outside, the power of these types of models is that you get these components and then you're able to say like, okay, how can we change that specific part of how you're processing? Like whether it's how intensely you're seeing the badness of the loss or if it's how much do you really care? Like maybe we can just say it doesn't really matter. Maybe the world isn't deterministic and that can help someone accept that things don't have to be black and white. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, now we're not going to talk about research anymore. We're going to talk about other fun things that you do, which <laughs> which we love. Scientists who do other things as well. <laughs> so as a practicing artist, one of your interests is engaging in the public with science and science communication. Can you talk a bit about this? To go further back in time, many, many years ago when I did my undergraduate degree, this was in art and psychology, which for the UK, it's quite rare to be able to do this two subjects, major, minor thing. So they're taught completely separately in that way. And I applied to do this because I wanted to be a art therapist. I thought like, I like psychology and I like art. How can I smash them together? Because to me, that was the only way you could put them together. That's the only thing I knew. And when I started doing my degree more, I realized, you know, I was really interested in research or pursuing research in, in a career more than I was interested in pursuing art. So I really started to think about, you know, what do I want to do next in a research perspective? But then in the last year of my undergrad, I went to this exhibition at the Wellcome Collection in London. So that's the gallery that the, the funding body, the Wellcome Trust has in their headquarters in London. And they had an exhibition on brains and this was just a, a lightning bolt moment for me because there was all this art and objects and artifacts about neuroscience and the brain and I was like what I didn't I didn't know you could do it put them together in this way and now you know we have all these science galleries so it's you know it's, it's a bigger thing now than it used to be but only then did I really realize you could put this stuff together so between then and when I moved to the US about two years ago for my postdoc, I was involved in lots of science, science communication and public engagement projects, typically using the arts to engage people with neuroscience, psychology, and occasionally tech as well. I did this with a group called AXNS Collective, so Art Times Neuroscience. And one of the, I think, most exciting events we did was called Signs, S-I-N-E-S. And for this, we got this um, wonderful data set or donated this data set of people in the MEG scanner having taken psilocybin, which is a psychoactive drug, in a clinical setting and then having their brain scanned. And this scan produces sine waves, so sound waves. Or you can you know, interpret the data as that. And we put these neuroscientists and these sound engineers and artists together in groups. And they had to create, I think we called it a music scape based on the data and then we had a concert at the end where they performed them after two days. You know, it was like a hackathon. There was other artists working around the topic as well. And it was just super fun. And it was like a creative way to think about data. And one of the most exciting bits was 
you could walk around the room while we were facilitating, which often just means making lots and lots of cups of tea so people can stay in their seats and talk. And you would see this language develop between the artist and the scientist, where at the beginning you'd see they were like arguing about the terminology for something. And then over time they realized they were just talking about the same thing and they had different it's words. Cool. And often this happened after they started drawing things and being like, yeah, that's what I mean too. And it was so much fun. It was a great project. So I'm really that's excited awesome. maybe in the future to do more things in that space. Cool. Because you mentioned that there's a difference between, and maybe I got this confused, public engagement and science communication. Can you explain that? Because I think I just thought they were the same. Sure. So people do use them interchangeably <laughs> sometimes, and I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. But I think the agreed upon definition is that science communication is unidirectional. So I'm a scientist. I want to explain something to you, or I want you to leave with a particular message or understanding. Whereas public engagement is bidirectional. So you also want input from the public into how to do science in some way or how to frame a hypothesis. Um, and you can see how this might be work used in the clinical um, research settings more. What questions are of interest to groups affected by um, a particular disorder in general? So you can do th that through the arts because arts are a very powerful way to talk to people. We sometimes talk about talking via an object. So sometimes talking to a scientist face to face is kind of scary. But if we can both talk to this bit of art we're making together, we can have a really great conversation. We don't have to look at each other. We can, you know, be making something out of plasticine, which represents something and also talking about how do you think about this thing and how are you representing that thing? So both can be very useful, but used in slightly different ways. So I have my like top tips on doing yep. some <laughs> communication projects, if you would I like would love to hear that. them. So if I was to give one suggestion or one tip for anyone wanting to design their own science communication projects, particularly using the visual arts and things, is don't try and communicate the whole of a really complicated system and think if they don't understand all the intricacies of these things, I've, I've failed as a communicator in some way. Really what you want to think is what's the one thing you want your audience to walk away with after interacting with you as a scientist and with science so that can be something new and surprising. So, oh, I learned a new thing about how something might work, a new thing about how the brain works. They could learn something that's generally accepted in society, like this left brain, right thing, brain thing, and learn, oh, that's actually not true. Or just brains are cool. I'm going to go buy a book about brains for myself or my, my kids or something like that. But really the most important thing is that people walk away with a good experience with science or a good experience with a scientist. Because... Not everyone, you know, has interacted with scientists before. They might have this perception that we're these very stern, scary people in white coats or science is too complicated and it's not for me. And if I try and engage with it, people will think I'm stupid. So you really want them to walk away being like, yes, talking to scientists is great. I want to do more of that. I want to learn more. I want to engage more in this world. That's a great tip. And I mean, that's why I really care about the podcast because I really want everyone to feel like they can be a part of it. They can understand it. You know, science isn't just, we shouldn't keep it locked up for, you know, people who have just gone to even university. I feel really strongly about that. A lot of my friendship group aren't in science. A lot of them are artists and they've been listening and it's amazing just their insights from hearing some of the episodes and like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? It's like, no, I, I haven't. That's an amazing insight. So I feel very passionate about making everyone feel like they can be a part of it. I think that's really important in computational psychiatry as well to think about when you're using these computational methods and models. Ultimately, we want them to be used in a clinical setting and clinicians won't have done years of computational training necessarily. So we have to think about, can we communicate these ideas and can we keep our models at the level where they can be useful? Because I can create the most complicated rumination model in the world and it has a full model of memory and like 7 million working parts that you have to understand dynamic equations for. And like, what are we going to do with that? Mm. It's, yeah. it's an intellectual <laughs> exercise rather than something having value. Yeah. And just another one of the things that you do. So you have different teaching experience. So you're involved with teaching without grades and prison teaching. Could you explain why you feel like it's important to engage with these more non-traditional teaching methods? 
So I'll just explain teaching without grades for your listeners. It's this idea that we can have some kind of educational setting where people aren't motivated by the grade they get at the end necessarily, and we engage them more in the process of learning itself. Now, ultimately, because these are often informal educational settings, people do have to get grades. But in the case of the class I taught with, with my advisor, Yael Niv, the class was called Animal Learning to Changing People's Minds. We asked them to define their own criteria for their grades. So they got the syllabus and they got to make goals for themselves like, I will learn how to clearly communicate computational models to my peers. Like some people write that as their goal and then they graded themselves against that and they established their own criteria. So everyone was engaging in the same content in class. It's great because it was a class about learning, reinforcement learnings, and then we had this meta level of how do you learn about learning? Um, but you really see that students are able to engage in a different way where they're not concerned about what's going to be on the test. Am I going to get a good grade in this class? And it also encourages them to challenge themselves because challenging yourself is risky, right? If I want to learn something new in this class or you know, maybe give myself a really tricky topic for my essay at the end, I might be risking getting a slightly lower grade with a standard marking criteria. But if I've set my own goal as something about challenging myself, then I can be rewarded for doing that. And that's really what we want people to get out of our classes as lecturers, as teachers, as we want them to enjoy learning and learn as much as possible. I've also seen since we've had these large language models and chat GPT, lots of professors on Twitter kind of scrambling to change their syllabus to say, you can use ChatGPT in this way, but you have to do this and then you have to print it all off for me and sign the statement and all sorts of things. But I think really we're at this moment with this wonderful opportunity to reflect on what students think they're getting out of classes. So if we're giving assignments to them where they think the only value is getting 100% on the assignment, have we really engaged them in why they're learning something? So it can be, a, you know, such a fun experience to teach because you're really getting in being like what do you want to learn about and how do we learn together and it really makes you feel like you're adding value in a way that perhaps is not as easy or not as direct in a more traditional classroom setting. I think that that's really cool but I'm sure people have a, this question which I'm sure you have an answer to. How does that work then for people applying for example to med school? So mm -hmm. if you need, you know, if people get it, you need to have certain grades or I'm doing the PhD, I needed to get certain grades to get in. If we move to this teaching without grades, can that be something we could do across all teaching? I mean, I think that would be awesome. And if that was the case, how would we change the system to be accepted into certain programs? That's a great question. So I don't know a huge about the medical school applications but two things I do know is you have to you know pass these um, particular tests in different sciences with it and it literally comes down to like a ranking a grade that can be ranked and then you also do sometimes at least in the UK you might have a, a role-playing exercise where you have to you know demonstrate bedside manner and, and things like that and ways you might try and diagnose someone so the former with the score when you're talking about a field that's literally life or death Maybe in these scenarios, something more traditional, at least at the level when you're trying to see how much someone does know in order to see if they're qualified to do this extra learning. Maybe that's a space where a full teaching without grades model is not useful. However, they could have taken other classes previously in their educational experience that could use that model and would really help them develop their own educational toolkit that they have, which would help them do these tests even better in the future. But something like these role play bedside manner things, that could be where a teaching without grades model is very useful because you can leverage more peer-to-peer -peer training. Because when we take grades out of the question, it reduces that competitiveness sometimes. And if it's a skill you need to have, which is about cooperation and working with others, then that could be a very valuable space for that. All right, great. And then if you just want to speak a bit about prison teaching. So I've been tutoring and teaching in state prisons in New Jersey for about two and a half years through the Prison Teaching Initiative that is part of Princeton University and other New Jersey universities. And now I teach with a community college which runs the classes in the incarcerated setting. And I think if you're someone who enjoys teaching and who values teaching as a practice, you want to create the most value you can with those skills. 
And for me, that means seeking out environments and seeking out students who will most benefit from these skills you're trying to develop in yourself. So when you teach in, in an incarcerated setting, you might encounter students who have not had the most positive educational experiences in the past for whatever reason. And they may have been made to feel that educational spaces were not for them or not welcoming to them. So it can be really rewarding as a teacher to try and create environments where people, where you're helping to empower themselves to learn and achieve the qualifications that they want to do. And sometimes that means, again, talking in this meta way about learning about learning. So I teach basic math at the moment. How are you going to revise for this test? Or how many times do you need to practice and think about this in order to really consolidate this information for yourself? So you feel like you're adding, you're adding value in that context because it might not come as a surprise to you, but teaching is not the best paid job in the world. <laughs> you really want to do it. So me, you want to do it in so places where you're like, I'm providing value yeah. by doing this. Yeah. And you do feel like you're able to, to contribute in that space. So Ava, are you a ruminator? I don't think so, actually. I think I actually might have the opposite pro I think I compartmentalize too easily. I'm like, oh, that's so a later. It happens and you just move on? Well, I think when there's seriously something that is upsetting, I think I shove it away. And oh. I think I like do the opposite of rumination. And I'm just like, that's not happening. And like plug my ears. Mm -hmm. And I think actually like the parameter that speaks to me the most in the model <laughs> is what, like... It's like a quiz. What parameter are you? <laughs> I think the parameter that I am and like the side of the parameter I am is that deterministic model of the world. Like, uh -huh. I feel like I have very low, like, I just am like, everything is random. You can't oh. know anything, oh. nihilism, whatever. I'm like, whatever happens, happens. How can I know? I might as well just not think about it and plug my ears because whatever I do is not going to change anything and things could change in an instant. So I think I don't ruminate because that parameter is low. Okay, so you think the world isn't deterministic at all parameter? You think it's yeah. like all random chaos. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will say, obviously, sometimes I do have some kind of social anxiety where I'm like, oh my God, why did I say that? Which happens a lot, actually. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this, Beth, but like after we record an episode, really? I'll be like, what am like, I'll like replay something that I said and be like, that was so dumb. And then sometimes it's hard for me to fall asleep or like I wake up in a what? sweat being like, someone is going to find this episode on the internet and be like, what is this person talking about? And I'm going to get canceled. What? <laughs> Maybe I, I do ruminate. I don't know. That's like real rumination. <laughs> that sounds like overestimating the outcome of a loss, like high loss aversion. Yeah, I think I have high loss aversion, but also I pair that with low determinism. So I'll have to do some simulations to see. That's crazy. I didn't know you got that worried about it. Well, ruminated about it because that's after, well, or maybe that's worry because that's thinking about all the things could go wrong. Yeah, I don't know whether it would count as rumination or worry, but, and it's usually under the cover of night. <laughs> <laughs> usually in the light of day, I'm like, it's fine. Like our, our 50 listeners are not going to cancel <laughs> me for this. Love each and every one of you. <laughs> I, I, I feel like. worry about that. I know you don't. I know yeah. that you do. I always say to Ava, let's just put everything on the internet. <laughs> yes, that is that's the combo that we have. But do you feel like you ruminate? I don't ruminate, but I worry. So I definitely think about the things that could go wrong and plan for those. But then after things happen, I usually am pretty good at letting it go. Um, well, that sounds healthy. Yeah. And I, so I guess I'm the, bringing the snacks on the hike person that Rachel was talking about yeah I feel like it's also like I guess maybe you talk about this a lot in the computational psychiatry space but I feel like sometimes it's like pathologizing mm -hmm. things that are just like nice like if yeah maybe you worry but then you also make sure that everyone has snacks and like that wasn't irrational like that was yeah. very useful and I, maybe when I was younger I was worried about what I was saying more but I don't know I feel as I get older you just 
don't worry. You don't ruminate as much on social things after. And it was funny with Rachel's example about being worried about perceived in the pub. And I think also Australians, maybe because we have less of that as well, like those things are not a concern for us, as I think probably people who have met Australians and seen Australians are very aware of. Yeah, you don't seem like the most worried or ruminating bunch, (laughs) I will say, culturally. Anyway, lots to think about. Everyone, let us know if you're worriers or ruminators and what parameter you are. I kind of love that. I want to do a quiz. Is BuzzFeed still BuzzFeed quiz? model parameters i'm sure that will bring them back to their (laughs) 2014 glory well this has been amazing and so interesting if you just want to finish by sharing with us what you're excited about coming up next i am very excited about trying to think more directly about abstract thoughts And what are the kind of neural and cognitive mechanisms that make a thought abstract? How does the brain represent something that's like fuzzy, like I'm a bad person? It's not very concrete, right? When you can think of particular memories we might have as being quite concrete, they have lots of different elements to them we can imagine. But, you know, I believe the world is this way. We can think about it. But what does that look like neurally? And I really want to start thinking more about that problems in that space and then maybe that might lead to some ways to think about the rumination and state inference model in a neuroimaging context and somewhere we can try and match the modeling with what actually people are bringing to mind when they might be engaging in things like this. I think it's a really exciting challenge for the field of repetitive negative thinking to try and tackle these abstractions and I think it would be really really cool for computational psychiatry generally to have a more formalized understanding of these things and how they connect to other symptoms. Thank you to Dr. Rachel Better for joining us this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but in the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.